You're listening to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. fifth book of Moses, as they call it. It's the last book written by this man, Moses. We're going to be reading about him. And Moses's life was one of those epic lives in human history. God had used him to literally free a people, his people, from slavery to a world power. The land was Egypt. The people were Israel. He had been raised, if you don't know the story, in the royal court of Egypt and then had to flee after he killed an Egyptian and run away from his land. And then many years later, God personally sent him back to free the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And God did amazing miracles, and he did that. And we actually read months ago that story together in the book of Exodus. And then God led the people through the wilderness. That also took many years for various reasons. And the book of Deuteronomy is the record of the teaching, the speeches, the words that Moses said to the children of Israel as he signs off. This is basically his final words and his final actions for <clears throat> the children of Israel. And, and, and really, uh, it's the Lord's message to Israel through Moses. So let me just really quickly give you a structure of this passage before we start reading, at least the beginning of it. Uh, Chapter 31, if you just look, hopefully you have your Bible. There's usually a few on the table in the back um, hallway if you don't have one. Uh, or, of course, you know a lot of people are reading on their phone. I do recommend at some point, though, it's great just to get a paper Bible to have to bring to church in case that's not something you've done in the past. I highly recommend it. But look at verse 14 of chapter 31. Notice God is talking. He said in verse 16 again, the Lord said to Moses. And in verse 14, God tells Moses that it's time for him to die. And in verse 17, God predicts that things are going to go bad for Israel spiritually after Moses dies, and that the people are going to interpret what happens to them to mean that God has left them. And in verse 19, because of that, God gives Moses a song to teach Israel. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. And verses 24, you look at verse 24 and 26, he also gives, he has Moses give them a written copy of his law. So these are like the last things that Moses is going to give to his people before he dies. This is the very, his last acts, right? And those two things, the song and the written copy of the law, were to be protections for Israel and witnesses against Israel when they say the things that are recorded in verse uh Seven, I said 17. It's not 17. It's, uh, yeah, 17. Have not these evils come upon us because God is not among us. And then chapter 32, if you look at it, see it's written a little differently. That is the song that's specifically given to Israel through Moses that Moses teaches them. So they'll be able to interpret their future situations uh, correctly. That's what we're going to read. And verse 44 of chapter 32 through 37 uh, 44 through 47, if you look at it, is a concluding exhortation based on all this. What should be Israel's takeaway from all this? So that's where we're going tonight. Uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll read all the way through to verse 47. We will start in chapter 31, uh, verse 14. Again, these are the final words and actions of the prophet, the leader Moses, for Israel, his people, right before they go in to occupy their new homeland and take what we now call the land of Israel uh, as, their, as their sort of ancestral homeland, which it had been before and was going to be again. So let's pray. A welcome if you're here, if it's your first time. We, we are pretty serious about the Bible. Hopefully that will uh, make sense to you and you'll actually uh, vibe with that, as, as Naomi says the kids say. Um, before we're done, thank you. Um, and uh, also, a lot of new faces. So like definitely, let's all let's make an effort tonight to to meet people. You know, if someone shows up here, you know, ninety nine percent of the times because they they want to 
make some friends and some connections, or at least check out what this Christian thing is all about. So they either should make friends or at least meet some Christians who can, uh, you know, give a good witness for what the Christian thing is all about. So definitely, you know, connect with each other tonight uh, as the study's wrapping up and as we're done uh, singing together. So let's pray, and then we're going to study chapter 31, verse 14. Father, thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear your voice. Help me to faithfully uh, and helpfully talk through these things, Lord. It's it's just such a big deal to handle your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not a God who tries to manipulate us. You don't need to, Lord. You're not trying to pull the wool over our eyes in any way. You can just tell us what's true. And in fact, you have, and you've had it written, translated into our own language, and here it is for us tonight. So pray that we could hear your voice, your word here in Deuteronomy. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy 31, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. So call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. The tabernacle of meeting, we've studied this, was like a tent that was basically a mobile temple, uh, or at least it may have been one of the other tabernacles, but it was a tent here where God um, was going to meet with them. And the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. Pretty crazy, but that happened a lot uh, in this time period. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. That's Bible language. The word harlot means prostitute. And uh, God often talks about dark spiritual activity in sexual language. We can say that because this is a room full of adults. And I think it's because probably he recognizes the connection between those two. Uh, they often actually go together. So this is what he says, and they're going to rise and play the harlot. They're going to worship other gods is the idea of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Verse 17, then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day. So God's, remember, I, we, we said this, right? He's telling Moses the future. And I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these, and this is a key, key phrase, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, in which they have turned to other gods. So that's the beginning of it. Here we go. So like we've seen since we began studying the book of Exodus here, This is a time in Israel's history, was a time in Israel's history, where God was personally directing the events. Moses had been Israel's leader, but he wasn't a king or a CEO. He wasn't that kind of leader. He was basically just a prophet. Maybe you shouldn't say just a prophet. He was a prophet, which meant that the way that he he led, unlike a king or a CEO, was to hear what God said and then tell the people, this is what God said. And then... He also had to take responsibility for making sure that the things that God said were carried out. And this is actually a paradigm for all spiritual leadership. And at this point in Moses' journey, God was telling him, we just read it, that his time was winding down. He was going to die soon. But God also told Moses, as we saw in the intro, what would happen after he died. So even with all the care that God had gone through to free Israel from slavery in Egypt, to bless them and personally guide them, to give them the land of Canaan, and to clearly spell out his will in all these directions, or you can call them instructions or laws that Moses had given them. We've been reading all these things. Even with all of that, the people would, in the future, turn away from God. And then God told Moses that he would turn away from Israel. Verse 16, it says, they'll go and they'll worship other gods and they'll break that covenant, that sacred agreement with God. Verse 17 and 18 that we just read, God will, in fact, turn away from them in response. 
And then the reaction that the people will have to this situation, which God predicts in verse 17, is to say, all this happened, has happened to us because God isn't with us. Now, I think there's some irony here because what they say is it's right on the surface. God says it right there. He'll hide his face from them and they'll be devoured, right? This, some, some rough situations God's predicting. But you can tell from the whole passage that the way the people say that, it's not in a repentant, humble way. Because whenever God's people repent and acknowledge reality and turn back to God, he immediately heals them and restores them. You see that throughout the scriptures. He comes back to them. But that's not what's going on in these verses. No, what God told Moses is that when the people worship idols and God responds by withdrawing, And they begin to suffer because of the lack of his presence. That's what God's predicting. Their response would not be to acknowledge that the whole thing was their fault. For for running away from God. For ignoring his commands and worshiping idols. They wouldn't admit that those things were the problem. No, they would basically blame God. I think that's the idea. And you see this when some tragedy happens in America and people say, where was God? How can he let this happen? It's exactly the same idea in verse 17. And and that's why it's actually so difficult to bring the healing that God does offer into public conversation after a horrible tragedy. Have you ever noticed that? You ever wished at work after something horrible goes down? you You could just talk to people about the kind of healing that God brings. And maybe you've had that opportunity. But I think probably a lot of us have experienced, it's like if I say this, if I talk to them about the Lord, what God can do in this situation, they're going to, people say, you know, where was God? How could he let this happen? I'm going to talk about, you talk about God. How could God let this happen? It's exactly the same idea in verse 17. That's, that's why it's so difficult to bring the healing that God offers into public conversation. Because the basic reaction a lot of people are going to express is some form of, if God was here, if, if he cared, if he really was who he said he was, then he wouldn't let this happen, right? So, so people reason, since it did happen, wherever God is, he's not who you Christians say he is. People talk that way. They think that way often, I think. But look at verse 18. God says, why do you feel like I'm not around? It's because of the evil you've done. God is actually having this exact back and forth with his own people. So, when horrible violence and tragedy breaks out in a culture and they can't stop it and it's devouring them, that's what the verse says, right? It's not because God isn't real enough or powerful enough to step in. It's because they intentionally put relational distance between themselves and him. And now they're feeling the effects of that relational distance from God. Now, while Moses was alive, it was his job. It was his job to keep all that from happening. And it was a rough road. We've read the stories, but he did it. But God was telling Moses here that he was about to pass off the scene. So what was going to fill? Moses, it was your job when you were here to keep all this from happening. What's going to fill the void when you're gone? And God answers that question in three ways. First, he appointed Joshua as the next leader. And then starting in verse 19, God gives Moses two things to leave behind Joshua for the people. Verse 19, he says, Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song that he's going to teach them will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore, verse 22, Moses wrote this song the same day, and he taught it to the children of Israel. And then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, right, as next leader, right, and said, be strong. And of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them. 
and I will be with you. So some people call this song the national anthem of Israel. You, you hear that sometimes and you read this. And whether it should be called that or not, God knows the power of song to shape people's thinking. It's a pretty basic observation here. So this, this is a national song that he gives them that's never going to be forgotten. And it hasn't been, and that's how it's in the Bible. All these, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, here it is. And it's supposed to shape their national consciousness, I think is the idea, in their national psyche, you could say. In that national psyche, this song is supposed to act as a witness to the truth. That's the idea there of that witness, that word witness there. When the people accuse God of being the reason for their problems, this song that everyone's going to know, it's just going to be sort of in the culture, is supposed to stand up and say, no, it's, it's, God's not the issue. The, the problem is our fault. And the second thing that Moses is to leave behind is actually the major thing that we've been looking at in our study of Deuteronomy. You look at verse 24. So it was, verse 24, when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck, if today, while I am yet alive with you, so now this is Moses speaking in the first person, right? You have been rebellious against the Lord. Then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I've commanded you. And the evil, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So here it is, right? The written book of all that Moses had heard, heard from the Lord and all that he had taught at God's command would be in the center of the tabernacle, that, that mobile temple, next to the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was and where people worshiped. In other words, they were to have, we, we read it, a song memorized in the center of their mental space, right, in their hearts, so to speak, and a written copy of God's word in the center of their physical national space, in their temple, so to speak. If they got tempted to say, in the future, and things got rough, where's God? Like, where could he be? And if they got tempted to blame God for the bad things that were happening, this song and this Bible would correct them, or at least it would, they would stand as eternal witnesses to the fact that if they indicted God, if they, if they blamed God, they were wrong. They were wrong. And now we spent a lot of time talking about the written part of this in these studies. But let's look at this song, because it's actually given to us in chapter 32. And I want to take it section by section and see how exactly God wanted this to work. When things got bad because the people walked away from God, what did God want them to remember? And I think it's important for us to see this from the perspective of what a gracious thing this is for God to do. Because one of the things going on here is that God knows that even when humanity's suffering is its own fault, and I think we can all relate to this, the circumstances around all that suffering can create confusion it really can, when, when, when people or an individual are in the middle of suffering, it really can seem hopeless, like there's no God, or he doesn't care, or he can't help even if he does care. And if Satan can get us to believe his lies and walk away from God, like Moses said would happen to Israel, then Satan also knows how to lie to us in the middle of suffering the consequence, consequences of walking away from God, so that he can keep us from going back to God. It's like he, he lies to get us away from God, and then when we're there and it's horrible, he's like, right, you know whose fault this is? God's. So don't go back to him, because that'll just be worse. And, and it's, it's an old trick. You might be here tonight, and you might genuinely think that God is your enemy. I think a lot of people are tempted to believe that today. If you've never, if you've never actually encountered Christ, if you've never met Christ and, and if you've never repented of your sins and given your life to him and called him Lord, maybe the pain in your life makes it hard for you to listen to people talk about God and his love. That's very possible in a room this size. 
And maybe your family or your health or your life situation has been so hard that you just think that God's not real or he's not there. Maybe you suffered in ways that make you think that you don't want to know God even if he is real. That can happen. And I just want to say to you tonight that God knows the way you feel. He cares. And actually, those thoughts aren't reliable guiding lights. Those thoughts that, that what, what I've gone through is so difficult, I didn't want to know God. The, those thoughts really represent the fog of pain. That's all they are. Pain has disoriented you, and not only you, many, many people. Pain disorients us to what's true. But God knows. He sees you. And his word is actually the light that you need to escape the fog. If a culture, we talked about this last time we were together. If a culture walks away from God and serves idols, then the children of that culture will suffer. And if those children worship the same idols and commit the same sins as the culture is committing, then they suffer the pain of the culture and the pain from their own sins. So it gets compounded as the generations go on, right? The weight gets heavier. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for all of that. And he suffered the wrath of God for our sin. He, he took all that pain and all that wrath. And, then he, and he died under it. It was enough to kill him. It's crazy. And then he rose again from the dead. And that's the first word of God that cuts through all the fog. And many millions of people for 2,000 years have heard that word. Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And it's been, it's been the first light that began to walk them out of the darkness. And if you hear that tonight, and for the first time you embrace that as true, your sins will be forgiven. And God will give you his Holy Spirit to be eternal life in the center of your being. And then you can begin to discover that God's word provides all kinds of guidance and, and it provides all the help we need. But the first step is to let Jesus Christ wash you clean and give you the forgiveness and the healing that you need. And, and, and the guidance, the help that comes, you're going to find all that in passages like the song we have here. So again, picking it up in chapter 31, verse 20. Let's just see all the things that God wanted Israel to memorize. Things which would tell them what was real about God and life and the world when everybody had forgotten and the pain of life made everyone clueless about what was going on, what was really going on. So chapter 31, verse 30, last, chapter, last verse of the chapter. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. And here it is, chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distilled as dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. That's the first five verses. So the first thing and the foundational thing that Israel needed to remember when they needed to rebuild their thinking from the ground up was this. God is just. He's righteous. And everything he does is perfect. That's what those verses say. So if something is evil and horrible and unjust, it's the work of humanity. That would be the deduction they could take away from that. Verse 4 says, all God's work is perfect. Verse 5, there it is. They've corrupted themselves. So Israel, why is the world the way it is? Because men and women have corrupted themselves. Israel, why aren't you seeing God help intervene to help you? Because your culture is perverse and crooked. That's what this song says to them. And that would be bitter medicine for Israel to swallow, but it would be life-saving medicine because without, without learning that, what that, those verses say, and without agreeing with that diagnosis, they would never stop feeding on what was killing them and be healed. And so the first thing that God wanted Israel to remember in this song that should float back to their minds are those verses. And then verse 6, verse 6. Do you, deal, do you thus deal with the Lord? O foolish and unwise people, 
Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? So just with that verse, after a people walks away from God, one of the ideas that typically takes hold on their conscience is is that walking away from God doesn't matter. They walk away from God. And then one of the first ideas is like, ah, that doesn't matter if you walk away from God, which is convenient, right? That's not part of why our life is the way it is, because we we walked away from God. But the rhetorical questions that God poses in verse 6 point to one simple truth that would guard Israel from harmful delusions. And here's that truth, because we need to remember too, how we relate to God matters. And it's very simple. But evidently Israel would need to remember that. How we relate to God matters. And anything that tells you that you don't need to factor in your connection to God when you make decisions about life is lying to you. And anything that belittles God or ignores him is evil propaganda. Israel needed to remember that. And maybe their most central concern needed to be, how are we doing with God? Are we on good terms with him? After all, that verse says, he's our father. And verse 6 hints at what verse 7 says explicitly. Verse 7, it says the central role here, we're going to learn, that memory needed to play in all this. Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So the idea here is don't forget the past. And really, even though the song was for Israel, the first eight verses have sort of a wider focus. It's really all of humanity being spoken to here. So the idea is don't forget the book of Genesis. Don't forget that God is the father and the creator of all humanity. And then in verse 9, the focus explicitly narrows to Israel as God's chosen people that he had chosen to work through to get to all of humanity. Look at verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up his nest and hovers over its young. This is a picture of God, right? Spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So remember the initial thought that prompted this song even being taught to them. The people of Israel were, in the future, they were going to get into a rough spot or several rough spots. And they were going to conclude that God just wasn't around or that he didn't care. So God taught them a song that said, remember the past. And here you see it. God has always been working with you, he says to Israel. He's personally involved. And Israel's history actually proved it for them. The imagery God uses here is supposed to communicate personal caring involvement. You see verse 11, right? It's not a nature show. The idea there is personal caring involvement. He's working in the world. He's involved. And starting on ver- starting in verse 12, God expands on that with reminders for Israel of all the ways that he blessed them in their history. Because again, when they began to suffer the consequences of their sin, if they started to think that the pain and the chaos of the consequences told them who God was, God wanted them to remember something else. The blessings in their history were more accurate guides to the character of God than the things that they hated about the consequences of their sin. So look at verse 12. This is that history lesson. So the Lord alone led him, that is, led, led Israel. And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and the milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and the rams of the breed of Bashan. Evidently, those are really good rams. And goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. So the, uh, all those images are images of blessing, right? In an agricultural society, which none of us live in. In an agricultural society, blessing looks like huge, healthy, and productive fields and flocks, right? I, I don't, if I wanted to really, like, say something nice to you, I probably wouldn't be like, I hope you have a million sheep one day. You'd probably be like, all right, I mean, right? But back then, if I said that to someone, they'd be like, thanks, man. You know, like, they would have felt that as, that guy loves me, right? Um, 
Maybe we should start saying things like that to each other. May your flocks bear tenfold. You know, no. Um, some of you have two dogs. You can't even handle that. So I don't know if that would really be a blessing. So. <laughs> Sorry, that was a low, low blow. Uh, the next section, though, continues now the history lesson for Israel. Even though God blessed them like this, look at what happened in verse 15. Look at that word, Jeshurun. You ever see that verse before? Uh, Jeshurun's like a nickname that God gave to Israel. It's kind of funny. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. In other words, they experienced the blessing of verse 13 and 14. But the response was not this awesome life and relationship with God. It was verse 15. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You were obese. Then he, that's Israel, Jeshurun, Israel, forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Now, the metaphor is stripped away in the plural. Verse 16, they provoked, provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. And all these things would happen. It's in the present tense. I mean, in, in the past tense, speaking about the future, but they would happen. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. It's a lot there, right? One important point in those verses is just that we would notice, I don't think we should miss here, that God's emotionally involved in the life of his people. You see verse 16. You hear it in the background of verse 18. If we get tempted to think that God's not emotionally involved in the life of his people, we just need to remember what the Bible actually says. And Israel was supposed to remember this contrast. Right? The contrast between the God who's emotionally involved versus the idols. That's what God keeps talking about them, the false gods who are not emotionally involved. The idea is, he says to Israel, you went and chased the gods who never knew you or never cared about you, but the God who loved you and, and made you what you are, you forgot him. And verse 19 now continues this with a long section meant to help Israel see that the negative things they were experiencing were the downstream effects of worshiping those false gods. Idolatry always ends in ruin. And God wanted that actually etched into their consciousness. So again, verse 18, of the rock who begot you, you were unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Verse 19, and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocations of his sons and his daughters. This is quite the song, huh? And he said, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. The Hebrew word behind the phrase, uh, what is not God? And there in verse 21, you see it there. It means um, like vanities or, or like, I guess vanity, not like a mirror that you look at yourself in. It means like, like emptiness, right? I saw one definition that said, for the word, it said vapor or soap bubbles. Soap bubbles. I was like, that's cool, right? Interesting. So the people traded in the rock of ages or something like that would be the idea. The strong tower for soap bubbles. They traded God for a no God. And so God said he'd trade, he would trade them in, verse 21, for a no people. That's the, the word play there. You see a lot of that in the ancient Hebrew. Look at verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will dash them in pieces. By the way, anytime we read things like this, one of the things as a follower of Christ, one of the ways you can understand these things is this is a picture of what Christ received on the cross on my behalf. In other words, Israel had this prophesied this was going to come on them nationally for turning to idols. But no individual 
has to ever face these things because if you trust Christ as your Savior, then the word of God to you is Christ took this penalty for, for, your, for you on your behalf. And that's just, I think, important always to say. Uh, and then verse 26. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy. Remember that I here is the Lord speaking. Lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say, our hand is high. And it is not the Lord who has done all this, right? God's, he doesn't want the adversaries to say that. It's a pretty interesting insight into God's sort of internal thought life there in verse 26 and 27. So in the middle of God's judgment, he tells whoever's reading, whoever's singing this song, that he would choose to cut short his judgment on Israel because he cared, he cares, that Israel's enemies wouldn't get the wrong idea, as if they were stronger than God, or that if God just wasn't around, if he wasn't involved. You know, if Babylon comes and they just have unending victory over Israel, they might start thinking their gods were stronger than Israel's God, or that they themselves were stronger than Israel's God. And God says, I, I, won't, I don't want that to happen. That doesn't serve God's purposes either. And that idea of Israel in contrast to the other nations is actually behind the next few verses too, starting at verse 28. It says, For there a nation um, void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, or is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel, of venom, uh, cruel venom of cobras. Is not, sorry, verse 34, is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. So in verse 30, God basically asks Israel a question. How could they have been defeated so easily by their enemies unless God allowed it to happen? And that's the point there of verse, verse 30, and, and, and right, it leads right into verse 31. Israel had a rock to stand on, verse 31 to build their refuge on, which was unlike the rock the other nations had because Israel's rock was God himself. So since Israel had the eternal God as their rock and other nations had nothing like that, how could those nations have ever defeated Israel unless God handed Israel over? That's what's being said there. And then in verse 32 there, God is still talking about the nations around Israel and really, I think, all the nations of the world up to the present day, including our own. And he switches the image, if you noticed, from a rock, for safety and security would be the idea, to a vine, which was an image that symbolized, you know, where, where you get your life and your joy. Not a rock, safety and security, but a vine. What, what, where do you get your, your life from, right? The nations have a vine, it says there, but it's the vine of Sodom. That's a really interesting reference to Genesis 19, where... That, that, that record of the time when God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin by raining fire and brimstone down on their cities. What gave Sodom their life is the idea. What was the beating heart of the culture there in that city before God judged it? And you can read the story in Genesis chapter 19 to see the most obvious manifestation of this vine. But when the predictions God made about Israel's history came true, in the future, everything we're reading tonight, when that actually happened, the prophet Ezekiel was there in those times. You can read his book. He, he lived in the future to what we're reading in Moses here. And God gave Ezekiel, I'm just going to read this, these words to say to the people of Israel in his day. So, so in, the, in the past, or in the past, right, depending on which direction you're looking at, Moses says, the nations around you, they don't have a rock like our rock, and, and their only vine they have is the vine of Sodom. And then when you fast forward and you have a, another prophet during the time of the judgment of Israel, he calls, he calls up the same issue. Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm just going to read it. Verse 49, the prophet says this to Israel, Look, 
This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. He calls Sodom Israel's sister. She had her daughter. I'm sorry. She and her daughter had pride. I think Gomorrah would probably be her daughter. Had pride. This is the issue. This was the vine of Sodom. Pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Plenty of free time. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. She, she refused to take care of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty. That's prideful. And they committed abomination before me. And therefore I took them away as I saw fit. So those things right there that I just read, that's the vine of Sodom. That's what keeps, that's what keeps the godless culture feeling like it's full of life. You need something if you don't have the true life in your midst to make you feel like you're full of life. And so God says, oh, there's other vines. There's the one Sodom had. Maybe every other vine would be called the vine of Sodom. I don't know. And that's what keeps them running and forgetting God. And verse 32 and 33 here, what we're reading in Exodus, I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy, they say that this vine, you see it right there, it only bears one kind of fruit, bitter, poisonous fruit. And in verse 34, that verse seems to be speaking about the wine when he says, is, is this not laid up in store with me, sealed among my treasures? In other words, God stores up the wine of bitterness that Sodom cultures produce. I think this is the idea. And he'll give it to them to drink when he judges their culture. That's the idea. Especially the elite, I think. You see this in the scripture. Who use their power and money to escape the bitterness of the choices that they make. They're going to drink it to the full. And the book of Revelation actually uses that exact imagery. It pops up again at the end of the Bible. And verse 36 continues the thought now from verse 31. Israel's rock is different than the idols and the vine of Sodom and the vine of Sodom because, look at verse 36, the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Verse 39 is crazy. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. I mean, that's pretty heavy. Remember what the song is meant to do. It's supposed to tell Israel what's happening, why their culture is falling apart and why they're suffering when they've walked away from him. And here, God just promises that he will get his way in the end, whether that's in the compassion that he has on his people, like in verse 36, or in proving that every other God is fake, like in verse 37 to 38, or in demonstrating once and for all that he really is there and he really is God, verses 39 through 42. Only he gives life and ends life. Only he truly brings judgment on sin. And then verse 43, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. And I just think that's a pretty amazing note for the song to end on, being that it's for Israel to remember what's real about God when they're suffering the effects of their sin, because as we just read, one of the effects of their sin would be that their enemies, who are Gentiles, right, not Jewish, would be part of making Israel suffer. God would use the Gentile nations to, to bring judgment on Israel. It happened all through their history. And then, because of what those people would do themselves, they weren't just tools, they were people too. God ends up judging them for their actions. But here in verse 43, God shows Israel, and he shows us, that he doesn't hate Gentiles just because they're Gentiles, and that he wants them to be part of this whole thing too. And in the end, the most important category to God is not whether someone is ethnically Jewish or not. This verse says it's whether they're his servants and his people. Are, are you 
servants of God and the people of God? Or, or are they his adversaries? You're not born God's people or God's enemy. That's a path you choose. Will you, verse 43, rejoice when God says rejoice? And will you rejoice about the things that God says to rejoice over? If, if you will, then you're his servants and you're his people. If not, then you serve other gods instead and you're his adversary. But you never have to be God's adversary. That's the idea. And, and what's God's command to you? If, say, say someone realizes, well, I have been God's adversary, right? What's God's command to that person if they realize, well, I don't want to be anymore. I don't want to be God's enemy. I want to turn back. I want to belong to God. Look at verse 43. Here's God's command. Rejoice. Join the family and rejoice. And what's God's command to the whole world right now? Burn the vine of Sodom. Isn't that what it says? Cut it down, throw it away, and come join the feast. Or, as Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Christ said, right? Come rejoice. The prophet Isaiah said it like this. Listen up, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Same God talking. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. That's Isaiah chapter 55. And that's God's invitation to you and me and Philly and America and every other nation. That's God's invitation to the whole world. Literally to every nation. Jesus said it. Rejoice and be filled. Turn away from the vine of Sodom. Turn away from the other gods who present themselves as rocks. But they're not. All the idols. Right? And, and when you hear this in God's word, I think you understand why Moses would talk the way he does here at the very end of this song. If you look at verse 44. I'm going to wrap here in a second. Verse 44. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and he spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe, all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you. Futile, right? It is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life, and by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land in which you cross over the Jordan to possess. So the vine of Sodom will always tempt us as long as it's growing there. And we're going to see a lot of people drinking its wine go through life. It's just what you see. And when you see that enough, one of the things that can happen is you can get blinded to the bitterness and the poison all over those grapes, so to speak. So, don't set your hearts on it. Moses says, set your hearts on the words of God. It's not, it's not futile. <laughs> I don't know how to say that word. It's not futile. It's not pointless, Moses says. It's your life. That's what it says. And in fact, we have a promise greater than anything Israel ever heard about living long in the land. Because that's what Moses keeps talking about. Right? It's, it's your life. You'll live long in the land. But, but most of you know, in John chapter 15, Jesus picked up very similar, uh, very similar imagery. And I, I just can't help but hear references to this whole vine uh, language in Deuteronomy. In John 15, Jesus said this, I am the true vine. I mean, to me, that's the Lord speak. Their vine is the vine of Sodom, but Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. This is how, how similar this sounds 
to Deuteronomy. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And he also said this, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So the words of God, the spirit of God in the center of our hearts as the source of life, Christ is the true vine, turning away from the false vines, the, the false rocks, the false gods, right? Turning away, getting our life from, from Christ, from God himself. That's the offer that God makes. It's the same exact offer of come to the waters and drink. Jesus said the same thing, right? In John chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 55, God says through the prophet, come to the waters. And Jesus himself said, if, any wasn't, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then out of his heart, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the, that's the promise that Christ made as well. So, you know, I just think it's so interesting to read the end of Deuteronomy. Such, it's, in one sense, it's like this, this history. Um, for me, I don't always see, like some of us maybe in this room, I don't always see the immediate connection and relevance as I'm reading it to my life that day. Like, I might not think, like, well, I almost drank from the vine of Sodom yesterday, you know. Some of us, that probably is true, but maybe not for all of us. But, but I'm sure with me, as you, as, you, as you move through the Word of God, if you're getting familiar with it, you just start going, I need to hear all of this. I'm going to store this away. Because God knows me better than I know myself, right? And so, Lord, okay, that was a song. Didn't sound like a song, but awesome. You wanted that to, to, to be in your people's mental space for their whole lives to help them. And I think that as we read it, as we study it, it's going to help us. And you take some of those verses there and you just go, okay, those could be life verses. I mean, those, those are some verses. I definitely want, need those verses in my mental space. So, so good to study this with you guys. Let's pray. And it's a little early, but there we go. Hope Tom's ready. Let's, uh, let's stand as they come. And we'll pray and we'll just begin to worship the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it just, it just stands. It stands like the song said, like, or you said about the song, as, a, as an eternal memorial. Here it is. All these years later, we're reading it. And it can help us see what's true. Set us straight. Clarify for us, Lord. And we pray that it would always have that effect in our life. And we pray if any of us have or are you know, getting tempted by or enjoying what you would call that great image, Lord, the vine of Sodom. We pray that we would just taste the bitterness on our tongues, so to speak, before we have to taste it with our life and just turn away. And Lord, that you would use us, use us to help others see. God's not the problem. It's the poison of the fruit you've been eating. Lord, show us how to help people see that in the days that we're living. And we pray that many, many would turn away and just turn to the fountain of living water. We thank you that you offer yourself to us that way, Lord. And we pray that we would be those who be drinking and be filled on the inside. And we thank you and praise you tonight, Lord. And help us now just to praise you and to enjoy your presence as well. In Jesus' name, amen.